Hi everyone, my name is Miles Surrett and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership in the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASA Leadership Podcast, which is presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. You can get more information about the Knowledge Community on our various social media outlets, including face Facebook, which is facebook.com backslash SALead, on Twitter at, at NASPA SLPKC, uh, on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC, and all of our webinars can be found on the Knowledge Community YouTube channel, which is NASPA SLPKC. I want to welcome my guest today, who is Nick Lennon. Nick received his BA from Hamilton College and earned his PhD in Educational Psychology from the University of Texas at Austin. Nick is the Director of the Leadership Education and Development Office at George Mason University. Much of Nick's work is focused on ethics and its relationship to leadership. He oversees the LEAD office, which helps students develop as effective ethical leaders through a series of workshops, conferences, classes, speakers, dialogues, and retreats. Nick also teaches a four-credit ethics and leadership course as part of Mason's leadership minor. He's traveled extensively in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, and this past May, Nick took a group of undergraduate and graduate students to Germany, Poland, and the Czech Republic for a new program called Ethical Leadership Lessons from the Holocaust. Most applicably for our conversation today, Nick also developed and facilitates Mason's engaging program to support international domestic student dialogues, right, wrong, or different. Welcome, Nick. Hey, Miles. Oh, well, thanks so much for, uh, thanks so much for joining me here today. Uh, so just, to, just, you know, that introduction was obviously, uh, obviously very extensive there and impressive. So uh, before we talk about right, wrong, or different, and even before we talk about uh, even before we talk about leadership as a general concept, I wanted to just kind of get a sense of, you know, why leadership work? Why is this a, a calling for you? Sure, definitely. Um, I feel like we're very, you know, social creatures and that um, we need to work together well in order to kind of accomplish things. And much of leadership is really about the process of teamwork and working together with others and, you know, collaboration, especially with those who are different from us, different backgrounds, different viewpoints. And I think it's, you know, one of the most complex things to study and help people learn about, but also one of the most important things um, that we do because of how social we are and how much we can accomplish as, as groups more than just as individuals. Okay, great, great. So who is the best leader you know and why? Um, so uh, the person I thought of for this would be my mom, um, and the reasons I would say my mom is because I feel she's a very kind, ethical person, um, a great listener, and she doesn't hit the, some of the things that sometimes people think of stereotypically uh, when they think of um, leadership in sort of a positional way or something. She's um, reserved. She's not doesn't seek out the spotlight. Um, but she's really powerful in her influence um, in subtle ways um, through listening to others and caring and compassion and that kind of stuff. So she's the best uh, leader that I personally know. Hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. So I, I ask this question on every podcast, and, and I've asked it to a lot of students over the years, and it's uh, it's amazing how many people how many people reference their parents and sort of quiet leadership and it's it's interesting to think about about leadership within a family. I I gosh it it also gives me hope because maybe one day uh, I have a one year old and maybe uh, maybe he'll grow up to to say that about me. Wouldn't that be that would be just the best? Definitely. Actually, I have a one year old myself, so I didn't I didn't know that about you. Oh gosh, they should hang out sometime. Yeah. <laughs> my son's the worst though, so I don't know. Uh, <laughs> 
So uh, what experience most informed how you think about yourself as a leader? So was there, you know, was there a moment or a, a season of life that really, that really led you to, to considering yourself in that role? Yeah, I think to me, um, one of the biggest things has been um, travel. Um, I, I taught English in Japan for a year, um, and I think you know, travel and living in a different culture can really kind of help uh, highlight like what's most important and challenge your way of thinking and everything. And I found that I had to have a delicate balance of making sure that I was still true to myself, but also adjusting to cultural differences. And I'll kind of give you a quick example related to that. There was a, a little discrepancy that I had about how many vacation days I was supposed to have. And so I was talking with the principal of the school I was working at, and we had a translator. And um, the translator kind of talked to me afterwards and said he was surprised at how direct I was and that, you know, that I showed some emotion, that I was like frustrated, which I'm usually a pretty low-key person, so I was surprised that stood out. But um, it's sort of came across that usually, you know, that wouldn't happen in a kind of conversation with a principal and that sort of cultural context and everything. And so, you know, everything worked out well, um, but it was something that kind of stood out to me in terms of how I have to, uh, you know, adapt and adjust to different cultures and different contexts. And you don't just, you know, have somebody who's, okay, they're going to be a leader in all situations. You know, you kind of have to take those factors into account. So that kind of stood out. That was an experience that kind of informed leadership for me. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I think the cross-cultural exchange is something that's, uh, you know, a huge part of uh, a huge part of being a leader, and I think that communication is sort of an ongoing is an ongoing challenge of leadership. I am looking forward to talking more about cross-cultural exchange when we get down down to right, wrong, or different. It sounds like sure. that was probably a, a a motivating factor in in the development of that program. So. Definitely, yeah, yeah. So you earned a PhD in educational psychology. That's a pretty unique avenue into leadership work. So how do you think your, your academic studies and that, and that lens by which you, uh, you know, were formally educated, how do you think that that adds value to, to what you do with leadership? Sure. So, yeah, it's educational psychology and some of my focus within that was um, was counseling. And um, it was so much of my program is really about better understanding yourself and better understanding other people. Um, and it also had a strong philosophical focus, actually, even though it was a psychology um, program. Um, which, you know, ties in a lot with, you know, how do you do things like, you know, creating positive change. And so if we think of something like the social change model is really hitting on all the main components of, you know, individual understanding yourself, understanding others and groups, like things like social psychology and that kind of stuff. And then um, the philosophical aspect I thought was particularly good about, you know, how do we think about what's going to help you know, create positive change and, you know, um, you know, will be uh, good, good leadership and, and that kind of stuff. So I felt like it, it tied in really well, although it's not the traditional path, but I feel every day the things that I learned from my classes and experiences there really fit in well with, with the leadership field. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, no, I'm sure that, I, I'm sure that that's really valuable and, you know, building programs and then, you know, in the individual sort of, uh, sort of in the muck of facilitating it out there. I'm sure that, you know, sort of, it's really applicable. Yeah. Um, so you teach a, you teach a course on the subject and it's a stated professional interest. So what unique value do you think can be gathered through the lens of ethical leadership in particular? Sure. And, and this one, um, 
feel free to cut me off if I go too long. I could probably talk talk forever on this one, but I find that a lot of times people will shy away from from teaching ethics um, because of a, like a few reasons. I think um, it can be really complex. Sometimes you know there's not clear answers. Sometimes there are, but um, it can be controversial, um, and also people aren't sure um, how to do it. And I think many people stop at sort of the level of values clarification. So, um, you know, what are your values and are you living in line with those? Which to me is definitely really important, but I think we have to go deeper than that. Um, so just for example, thinking about like what happens when two of our most important values conflict with one another? Um, how do we decide what to do in that case? Or when our values conflict with those of someone else, um, especially before we're talking about, you know, cultural differences or any kind of differences. And, um, even thinking about when someone holds a value that most reasonable people would say is clearly wrong. So for an example, you know, I did the Holocaust program recently. So if you think of, say, like a neo-Nazi or something like that, um, saying to them, okay, you know, clarify your values and act in line with those, there seems to be there's got to be something more than that. Um, so I think we need to talk about ethical principles that can help um, across different situations. And sometimes I find students are sort of um, certain, you know, there's a kind of a big mix, but um, cultural relativism sometimes seems to be appealing, um, that the only measures of right or wrong are the standards of the culture that people are in, and things like people say, you know, teach their own, or who am I to judge? But again, you know, an extreme example was kind of on my mind since I just did that, um, that uh, trip to the um, Holocaust sites, that if we... Um, look more deeply at values and stuff. Um, if, if we Basically, if we're saying, okay, cultural relativism, and that, that's the way I'm going to go, and we can't judge anything and that kind of stuff, we give up the ability to judge things like genocides, like the Holocaust, or slavery in our own country. Um, so I think ethics can really help us have principles to evaluate why something may be beneficial or harmful. Um, and then we also have to avoid getting too rigid with, okay, well, we have to follow this every time in all situations. So it's a delicate balance, but I think it's really just most of the topics I'm interested in, leadership, ethics, that kind of stuff, are sort of those more complex ones without easy answers. I kind of find it, you know, very interesting and challenging. Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting thought about about ethics being sort of a hedge against, you know, against sort of a blind acceptance of of values. And I'm sure that those, you know, I'm sure that those examples, though, you know, seeming extreme, are certainly helpful for folks in sort of, you know, combating concepts of you know, concepts of cultural relativism that may not be, you know, because even, you know, sometimes even when things are happening within within the context of culture, they are still ethically in a vacuum. Role. Sure, yeah. You know, so that's, that's really interesting, and I'm sure that that adds a lot of value. Um, so, you know, I, I was recently in a I was recently in a in a session where NASA President Kevin Kruger was talking about uh, you know how to sort of best prepare and best understand the field, and he said you know one of the, one of the first things that he, he mentioned was you've got to read your critics, and I think that that's an incredibly important practice in leadership, and I am always pressing at and asking this question because I firmly believe that when facilitated or framed improperly, leadership can lose its impact. So how do you think that we as student affairs practitioners can make sure that our programs really have meaning? Sure. I think um, one thing that really would stand out to me is 
making sure it's tying in with you know, whoever the participants are um, for, for our programs. Is this something that they can see uh, as relevant, or how can we help them to see um, what we're doing from the program or opportunity we're providing as relevant to their lives? Um, so I know before I was talking about um, ethics, and people might see like the Holocaust as something that's not as directly related to them, but a lot of times when we discuss things like ethics. Well, you know, I'll use like examples of dating. You know, you have two friends, one's cheating on the other. Do you tell the, the friend that the other person's cheating on them or that kind of stuff? Something, and a lot of times students are like, oh, I've had that experience. And so I think helping to um, bring some of these, you know, big ideas directly to their lives um, can really be helpful. And then making sure to listen, as I was saying about like my mom before about, um, you know, one of the things I really respect about her is how well she listens to others, is listening to those who are going to be affected by our programs, brainstorming with them um, what might be helpful, and really kind of challenging people to think more complexly um, about things. I know sort of in our um, uh, kind of politics these days, a lot of times there'll be some like, you know, okay, quick snippets and, and these will impact uh, how people view something. And sometimes when we dive deeper, you know, seeing the complexity of something I think can be really helpful. So really I think, you know, with that listening aspect is being able to ask good questions. Sometimes I think we feel like we have to show, okay, I know this or I know that, but really being able to discuss with people who are going to be affected by programs and asking good questions of each other. Okay. Great. Great. So uh, I kind of want to transition now to, to talking a little bit more directly about, about right, wrong, or different. So um, Nick, can you just provide a, a general summary of, of right, wrong, or different and kind of talk us through the, the origin of that program and, and what it looks like in practice? Sure, definitely. Um, so basically it's a discussion-based program. It's sort of three main goals. One is a discussion around topics that relate to ethics and leadership. A second goal is opportunities for um, international and domestic students to share perspectives with one another. And then the third one is opportunities for students to connect with faculty members outside of the classroom. And so uh, about three or four years ago, a colleague from our Office of International Programs and Services and I were sort of brainstorming, um, you know, what can we do to kind of hit these different goals um, and sort of came up with the right, wrong, or different program. And so just sort of a quick summary about it is it's basically about a two-hour program we do, we do once a semester. And the first 30 minutes, we kind of do some introductions and, and group agreements to make sure we're having um, respectful discussion and everything. And then we do a four corners activity where students will move around the room according to how much they agree or disagree with certain statements related to the topic for the day. Um, and I can kind of mention some of the topics in a second that we've hit on in the past few years. And then we break for about 10 minutes for um, the students to get the food, um, and because uh, we provide food for the for the program. Um, and then as they bring their food back, give them a little time to eat, and then we'll introduce the faculty member who's sort of the the topic um, ex the person with the topic expertise for that day. And they'll do typically about 10 to 15 minutes minutes presenting some research that they've done related to the topic, and then for about an hour facilitate a discussion sort of more in depth about the topic, and then we do a sort of little wrap up at the end. Um, and past topics that we've hit on, um, 
so we've done things around gender, addiction, religion, police intervention, refugees and displaced people. This is around um, this past fall around the, ref the Syrian refugee crisis, um, poverty and economic justice. So sort of a, a wide range of, of different topics. Um, and so that's sort of the, the kind of quick rundown that we, that we do, but I'm you know, happy to give more details or, or share those with people afterwards. Sure, sure. So, so you mentioned the collaboration across functional areas as being instrumental in the development of the program. What advice would you give for building those, you know, those effective collaborations? Sure. Um, so the way that this one had worked, um, the, the colleague from the Office of International Programs and Services and I had kind of worked together on a couple other projects before and just found that, you know, we worked really well together and kind of had strengths that would sort of balance each other out. And so um, when we kind of talked about, oh, we want to develop something new to kind of hit on the goals that I mentioned before, we um, just sort of had a good open brainstorm session, um, and I felt like the collaboration between um, she and I was was just really good, and we had sort of similar goals, um, all the different strengths, but then um, reaching out to um, some other people like some of the students in both of our offices, so in the Leadership Education Development Office where I work and International Programs and Services where she works, and asking them, um, as I was mentioning before, making sure we ask good questions and see, you know, is this something that the students think that they'd be interested in? How can we tailor it and make sure it's interactive and not have people just talking at them? That was one of the things that students really um, uh, wanted to, to be able to have the interaction and hear different perspectives. Um, so really the collaboration, there was a colleague that I already worked well with beforehand, and then when others we've told about the um, program, they've been sort of interested. It's sort of a little bit different than something that they've done before, and we're lucky at, at Mason that we have um, a good number of people, uh, international students and people from diverse backgrounds, and people are wanting to kind of find new ways to sort of bring them together. Um, so really, it was just helpful to have, uh, you know, asking each other questions and what our goals were, and then, um, you know, getting the faculty members involved also was, uh, you know, a really helpful part. Oh, well, great. Uh, so transitioning, that, that transitions perfectly to my next question, which is faculty facilitation is clearly an important part of right, wrong, or different. So what's your process for recruiting faculty facilitators? Because I know that, that can be a challenge sometimes for, you know, primarily extracurricularly based programs. Sure, sure, definitely. Um, so uh, typically what we do is we'll brainstorm. So across our different offices, um, you know, we'll ask students involved and that kind of stuff, like who are some faculty members um, that they've had um, that, you know, they know um, students uh, really appreciate, you know, that they are not only um, lecturing but also facilitate um, discussions because since this is such an interactive program and we're really wanting to um, – bring out the student ideas and, and their experiences that we really want to um, target faculty members who um, have some experience, um, you know, facilitating, um, you know, these sort of in-depth discussions. So sort of we brainstorm um, ourselves and um, 
with students, uh, and then we've also asked past faculty members. And once we did it a, a couple of times, like you know, who else would they recommend? And then um, we usually have, if it's a student who knows them, we ask them, kind of give them a template email, and ask, you know, would you be willing to contact this faculty member since they already have somewhat of a relationship? Whereas you know, it might not go over as well if it just sort of comes out of the blue from from myself. Um, and so they say, hey, you know, we'd like to nominate you to. Um, to participate in this right, wrong, or different program, and and we have you know our website which has some of the past programs listed, and um, we'll also share with the faculty member um, you know if there's PowerPoints from the past or what the structure of things are. Try to make it as little work for them as possible, just as an opportunity for them to share something that they're passionate about, because that's the thing we've found so far is that um, a lot of times the faculty members, because they're not getting any extra pay for this, and it's typically you know, um, evening time, that they're just um, excited to have a different venue for sharing some of the things that they've been working on that they're passionate about. Mm. Okay, great. So what sort of value have you seen from the faculty facilitation that you, you, know, you couldn't have generated from your office or from your students? Sure. Um, I think the, just their specific expertise um, in a particular area that, that, that we're focused on really um, is essential. Um, in a lot of ways, I sort of see myself as you know, my expertise within the, the ethics and, and leadership field, but sometimes if we're you know, bringing somebody around poverty or refugees and displaced people or something like that, we really need someone who um, knows that area really well. Um, so that's been huge uh, benefit to have the, the faculty members come and, and sort of share their expertise for that. And I think a lot of times the, the students really appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with these faculty members um, in a different venue. So there's not the grade um, hanging over their head, and maybe they want to challenge their ideas even more so than they might, you know, if they're worried about, oh, is this, this faculty member not going to like that I'm challenging them or something like that. So I think that's really been helpful to kind of have it in a kind of more informal way. Hmm. Okay, great. So, you know, the right, wrong, or different in many ways sounds like a, a perfect program that could be applied in many different places. You know, you've got faculty, you've got uh, faculty facilitation, faculty connection between curricular and extracurricular. You've got what I presume is not, you know, a ton of a ton of financial resources that are needed. You've got you're meeting a need on almost every campus to you know improve improve the dialogue between domestic and international students. You've got collaboration with campus partners. I mean, this is you know the gold standard in a lot of ways. So you know the only question really left to ask is what sort of outcomes have you seen from the program? Sure. Um, so we do an assessment at the end of each program. Um, and some of the things in terms of like numbers from things like that, we've definitely seen like a high percentage of our participants agreeing or strongly agreeing with things like, you know, that they would recommend the program to others. Um, one of the questions that we asked that I think is really important is, um, I, or one of the statements, I had meaningful interactions with people wh whose cultural background is unlike mine, because um, I know um, Something like you know the multi-institutional study of leadership. Um, one of their summary statements is that sociocultural conversations, conversations across difference, is one of the best ways to help develop students' um, leadership abilities. Um, so making sure that you know that's actually happening, and so we've had 
good results from that. Um, another one is, again, some understanding of how culture can affect people's decisions. Because I think a lot of times we forget of the impact, like myself in Japan talking about earlier, you know, sometimes I forget, you know, maybe I'm acting this way because that was sort of the uh, – that's the way you're supposed to do it in your culture and it doesn't necessarily work somewhere else. Um, so those things, we've gotten good results from that. We've had about 20% of the people coming to our programs are international students. So we definitely want to continue to increase that, but that's higher than what a lot of our programs are. So that's been helpful to see, but also another thing we'd like to improve upon. Um, and then just some sort of other informal things like students talking with faculty members af faculty members afterwards. So we had um, that um, refugees and displaced um, population um, uh, program in the fall. And, you know, we had a student talking with a faculty member and asking about, you know, do you have any connections to help me get involved in, you know, helping to work at a refugee camp or something like that. So just hearing things like that and students asking for, oh, are you going to do this again this semester has been, you know, other sort of more informal ways that we've seen sort of some impact. Mm, great. So, uh, you know, from those outcomes or anecdotally, what made you confident that right, wrong, or different was a success? Um, yeah, I think the, the thing that makes me most confident about it is sort of more anecdotally, uh, anecdotally as you're mentioning. So um, students asking for, oh, you know, when are you going to have this again? We have um, people who've come multiple times for different topics. Um, even the faculty members um, saying afterwards, oh, thanks for this opportunity, even though they're the ones I feel like who are doing us the favor by, you know, coming for two hours in the evening when they could be going home and they're not getting paid and that kind of stuff. So it just seems like it, it's connecting well with some things that people are really wanting to talk about. Um, and back to something I was saying earlier, I think sometimes people will shy away from, you know, ethics discussions or whatever, but I think sometimes they think of it as just, it's a, you know, ethics might be a way to kind of hold people in line or a bunch of serious rules or something, but to me it's really a discussion about, like, how should we live our lives, and that can be, you know, really enjoyable and interesting for people. So I think just those sort of informal things of people saying that they appreciated it or they want to come again or that kind of stuff has been... Um, sort of helpful for me to kind of feel like it was a success. Mm. Okay. Um, and finally, you know, ask this question at the, any, at the end of any of our programmatic specific podcasts. So what makes right, wrong, or different unique, and what makes it worth consideration on other campuses? What would you say to, you know, folks at your level or, you know, who are at a coordinator level and thinking about thinking about leadership programming or those who are really working with international students to build that dialogue, um, you know, why would it be worth consideration? Sure. Um, I mean, one of the things just from sort of evidence-based um, decision-making that, you know, with the thing I'd mentioned before, like the multi-institutional study of leadership and some other things as well, talking about how these conversations across difference, these sociocultural conversations is, you know, um, kind of show, showing up as one of the, the best ways to help students develop as leaders. I think that one, you know, in itself uh, makes it, you know, a good reason to try to bring these different folks together, the international students, domestic students, faculty members, um, to have these kind of conversations. And then um, kind of something that you had mentioned earlier that it's, it, it is, you know, some effort. It's not like, you know, 
the lowest level of effort or something like that. So I'd say, you know, medium level of effort, but I feel like a fairly high impact. So I don't think it's very difficult or very expensive to run, mm-hmm. um, but it helps people to think about some things in some more complex ways because of the um, how the conversation's going and everything. So I think it is something that could definitely, you know, be replicated and actually probably is already going on in different ways at, at other places. Um, so I think, you know, to be able to see that there's some evidence that these kind of conversations are helpful and, you know, feeling like there's a fairly high impact and it's not hugely expensive or huge amounts of, of time. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, uh, I think non-resource intensive high impact uh, programs are certainly, certainly worth consideration. So they're sure, getting yeah. on you know, that are hitting on best practices in the field. So, uh, well, thanks for talking to me about right, wrong, or different. I want to transition to a regular segment that we do here uh, called Rapid Fire. So I'm going to ask uh, Nick a silly, pretty arbitrary question and limit you to a 30-second response. So you ready for the first for the first question? I'm ready. Okay. So what was so you work at George Mason University? What was unique about George Mason as a leader? Um, I'd say he's focused on people's rights. Uh, he decided not to sign the U.S. Constitution in 1787 because it didn't have a Bill of Rights at the time, and so, and sort of seen as the father of sort of the Bill of Rights. So I think his focus on on uh, individual rights is something. Okay, great. And a uh, follow-up question. Uh, I, I didn't have you prepare for this one, so I apologize. Have you seen the George Mason Memorial here in D.C.? Uh, yes, I have actually. I know it's sort of near the when the cherry blossoms come out. I sort of saw it on the map, and I didn't know what it was. And so I actually made a little. My wife and I went over and made a little stop to to go check it out. Yeah, it's kind of a little bit off the off the side there. Yeah, it's sort of like tucked behind the Jefferson Memorial. It's a it's an interesting one. I think it really varies on time of year how uh, how attractive it is to visit because there's sort of a big like a, uh, a fountain in front that if the water's in it, it's, it's pretty. And if it's, you know, things are blooming, then it's nice. But if it's not, it can be, I, th- I think it's a little dreary. But Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't my favorite, I'd say. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, great. So if you were going to start a company or an organization and you could only pick one person from, from the corporate, political, or public world to lead your venture, who would you choose? Sure. Um, I don't know if I'd be able to get him, but I'd uh, choose the Dalai Lama. Um, okay. And the reason I'd say that is because I think trust is really essential um, in you know working together and leadership and that kind of stuff. And I feel like he sort of exudes compassion and and trust and and that kind of stuff. So uh, you know if, if he's available, uh, I think he would be really good. <laughs> okay. Great. Yeah. No, I think that that might be a tough sell getting him getting him. Yeah. But, you know, who knows? depends <laughs> on what kind of equity you'd provide and stuff, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so what's your favorite book about leadership? Um, I'd say um, How Good People Make Tough Choices by Rushworth Kidder. It's actually, you know, doesn't have leadership in the title or anything like that, but it's really, I think, an excellent book about how you prepare for making difficult decisions and balancing multiple viewpoints um, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, doesn't doesn't have leadership in the title, but I think it's sort of one of those sort of essential um, books to kind of think about decision-making and multiple viewpoints. Okay, great. Yeah, they, we've gotten a, a wonderful, so I asked that one in every podcast, and we're getting a really 
wonderful array of uh, a really wonderful array of books. I hope to put together a book list one day. That's a oh yeah, that'd be cool. Long term goal. So yeah. Uh, so you're a big sports fan, and athletic leadership is a very special public kind of leading. So who do you think is the best leader in the current sports landscape? Sure, and I don't know if this is uh, cheating or not because he retired about two years ago, so it's not necessarily in the current, but fairly recent um, is Derek Jeter um, from okay. the from the New York Yankees. I know there's probably a lot of people when they hear the Yankees are excited, and other people are like, oh, we don't like them. But uh, I feel like similar to some other things I probably mentioned is that um, it's not just about his accomplishments on the field, but I think he's, you know, how professional he is and respectful to other people and, um, and that kind of stuff and living in New York under the spotlight for uh, so many years. And I don't remember any scandals with his name in it or anything like that. So I just sort of respect, respect him as a person. Mm. Is that cheating that he was, uh, he retired two years ago? <laughs> no, I think that's fine. I mean, he, he uh, I, I think a great uh, indicator of his leadership ability is he started that uh, that media outlet, the Players Tribune, which gives direct oh, right. to athletes. So, and you know, there's clearly a lot of respect for him within within the athletic community that he would be able to lead lead that venture. And definitely, really, yeah. I mean, I haven't seen the financials, but just anecdotally, that seems like a really a really successful process. So yeah, and that ties in actually. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say he's definitely respected by his peers, which certainly speaks to certainly speaks to his leadership capacity. So. Yeah, it reminded me of the the trust aspect. I guess that's kind of a theme that's sort of popping out. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, there it goes. Okay, so our final segment is uh, is a twist on a classic icebreaker. So higher ed, two truths and a lie. So I'm going to provide two stories for Nick that are true from higher education current events and one lie, and then Nick's going to have to parse out the lie. So the theme for this portion is niche academic issues. Okay, so Nick, are you ready? I'm ready. All right, I'm going to read you your first option. Okay. Uh, the University of Connecticut recently shuttered its long-running puppetry program, citing the transition of Sesame Street to HBO as, and I quote, Diminishing the public interest in the field beyond repair. Okay? So that is one option, UConn and puppetry and HBO. The next option is Caltech's chemistry department is in a stated crisis following the announced retirement of legendary glassblower Rick Gerhardt. That's another option. And then the final option is University of Toronto English professor a University of Toronto English professor recently tr- tweeted over 500 times about a new book on King Lear, which prompted a pointed response from the work's author, Brian Vickers. One of the tweets from the uh, professor at the University of Toronto reads, writing these tweets while a teething puppy is chewing on my slipper. This may affect my tone. So those are your three options. We either have University of Connecticut puppetry, we have Caltech glass blowing, or we have University of Toronto puppy chewing King Lear criticism. Okay, I'm going to go with the second one, Caltech being the lie. Mm. You want me to explain why or... Sure, if you'd like to, yeah. Uh, Just it seemed like the other ones had such uh, good detail with them and that kind of stuff and um yeah that might not be the best strategy but i was going to go with the glass blowing as as the lie Mm. yeah i mean it's a it's a tough game uh so that one is actually true Uh, there's actually only one program in the country that 
prepare students for uh, scientific glassblowing, and that's at a community college in New Jersey. Uh, and Rick Gerhardt's retirement has uh, definitely, uh, Caltech is very, very actively seeking someone to come in and, and take his place. So that one is true. Uh, the University of Toronto uh, tweet uh, onslaught is also true. Um, the uh, professor there does not like Brian Vicker's book on King Lear. Um, so uh, that one is also true. The one that is not true is the University of Connecticut's puppetry program, as far as I know, is still going strong. Ah. Um, yeah, I uh, I tried to make that one. I tried to make that one pretty pretty detailed. I don't I don't know that the University of Connecticut really has a has an opinion on the transition of. Yeah. <laughs> that that was a good one. You had some good some good details on that. One. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's certainly some research that goes into that goes into teachers and a lot there. So, um, okay, well that uh, concludes our program. So thanks to everyone for joining us for the NASPA Leadership Podcast, which is presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community. And thanks so much to Nick Lennon for joining me today to discuss right, wrong, or different. And to find out more about right, wrong, or different, or about the Leadership Education and Development Office at George Mason, you can go to lead.gmu as in George Mason University. Edu as in the end of everyone's email address who's listening to this, or email Nick at n-l-e-n-n-o-n, so that's N as in Nick, Lennon as in John, at gmu.edu. And I also wanted to mention that Nick generously shared written materials that were really instrumental in the, product, in the, in the development of Right, Wrong, or Different, and we, uh, he shared those with me, and those are going to be available on the, on the SLP KC Tumblr if you're interested in starting a similar dialogue on your campus. Um, uh, you can also get more information about the knowledge community on our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash SALead on Twitter at NASA SLPKC, on Instagram at NASA underscore SLPKC, and all the webinars can be found on our uh, knowledge community YouTube channel, which is NASA SLPKC. You can also connect with me on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is at Miles, that's M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, that's S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And if you would like to submit questions to be answered on the next podcast, you can submit, submit those to naspaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program. So please shoot an email to naspaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Nick, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks a lot, Miles.